Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone. I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a channel in the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Ellen Notbaum about her debut novel, The River by Starlight. This explicitly lyrical novel weaves a beautiful veil over the hardscrabble life of early 20th century Montana homesteaders, not unlike the quilt created by its heroine, shown on the no less beautiful cover of the novel itself. Annie Rushton, fleeing a difficult past, heads west in response to a letter from her older brother, with the intent of keeping house for him while recovering some equilibrium for herself. From the very first page, we get a sense of what drives her. Of all the heartless things Annie's mother has done in 26 years, this might be the corker. She did it in a manner most unusual for her, did it without raising her chapped hand or equally chapped voice, did it with silent duplicity, undiscovered until this morning, by her youngest child, who should know better than to allow it to shock her. The unread letter sizzles in Annie's fingers as if it's her fault she hasn't read it yet. Her brother, Cal, intended it for her alone. Her name, Annalisa Rushton, sprawls across the full width of the envelope, the ink-splotched dot of the eye sailing high as a jackdaw over the scrawl. Cal's rogue humor leers up at her from where he penned the address, Cherry Pit, Iowa, crossed out Pit and block-printed Hill. She wouldn't have found the letter had not she wanted to settle the doctor's bill before he leaves, and she not had to lift the iron cash box out of the drawer of Pa's desk to Jimmy the crotchety latch. The letter's postmark so bold she can hear the stamp striking the envelope. January 11th, 1911. At least five months this letter has lain in dark limbo, hidden in the lowest reaches of a desk everyone still tiptoes around. A single minute is all she would need to separate the message from its envelope and lay eyes upon news my ma found dire enough to keep from Annie in such a devious way. But Doc's step descending the stairs melds with the scrape of the front door. That would be her sister Jenny, exchanging murmured greetings with the doctor. Annie shoves the letter into her apron pocket and removes two bills from the cash box. And now, please join me in welcoming Ellen Notbaum. Hi, Ellen. Thanks so much for agreeing to talk with me today. What a pleasure, Carolyn. Thank you for asking me. Before we get to your novel, please tell us about yourself. Uh, you've been writing and publishing for a while, but so far, nonfiction, especially books on autism. What made you decide to switch to writing fiction? Well, it might have been that the decision made itself for me. Uh, when I stumbled upon this story, my original intention was to tell it as nonfiction in some sort of creative nonfiction narrative that would pull in the themes that, that became part of the story. But as I researched, and the research did extend over many years, uh, it became clear that I was never going to have the whole story. So the information that I did have became the framework for what became a novel, and I kind of dove right in and uh, took up the challenge of learning something new at this point in my life, and it became a novel. Was that a big shift for you? Uh Oh, it was a huge shift. I never thought I would write historical fiction, and I had a history, as you say, of writing nonfiction books, um, which were also also in a health-related field, Um, but I had also written history, genealogy, and family history-type things for um, a, a history magazine, so I did have some experience in writing those stories in shorter form. But to move into fiction, yes, a a big sea change. So how do you see writing fiction um, as different from writing nonfiction from the perspective of the writer? And how did you master the new demands of producing a novel? 
you know, one day at a time, <laughs> one moment at a time, sometimes. Um, I had to immerse myself in a world with other people who had done it, and I applied for a number of writing res- residencies with samples from the book, and they were pretty competitive um, competitions, and the fact that I was able to get in um, indicated to me that the book had some merit to it, so I knew I was going in the right direction. So as we move into talking about The River at Starlight, you had just mentioned that it might originally have been a nonfiction story, and I saw that also on your website. What are the true events on which the novel is based? Okay, so the the framework of the novel is true. The uh, couple at the center of the novel are real. Uh, Annie Rushton, as I called her, it's not her real name, was a member of our enormous family tree, about 10,000 people, who was the one that I could never find anything about. And in genealogy, we call that a brick wall. She's the one person that nobody wanted to talk about. And being that there were only two people left alive on the planet who would have been able to tell me anything, and both of them refused, um, one politely, one not so politely, it was kind of left to me to uh, develop the kind of research tactics and strategies that I would need to, to go through the world of public records and get to the bottom of what I thought was kind of a compelling mystery because I could um, relate to her as a woman and as a mother and as a person whose blood is running through the veins of my children, and I felt that there was more to the story. So when I did find out why the silence... And she was, uh, she was, uh, I don't want to say suffer. I, I try not to use that word. She endured in recurring postpartum psychosis at a time when nobody knew what it was or knew what to do about it. And I found that this was a subject that is virtually never addressed in historical fiction. And the further I went into the story, the further I found that it was not only a woman's story that had virtually never been told, but also a man's story that had never been told, in that her husband was left to cope with the equally unfathomable emotions that men have surrounding what's happening to their wives. And so it became this dual point of view story that I hadn't anticipated either. So more than anything, um, this seems to me to be a novel about family. Uh, Sometimes the families are supportive and loving, uh, more often, uh, in part because novels require a conflict um, that the characters must overcome. Uh, But in this novel, family often becomes a source of heartache and loss. Um, Was that what you had in mind, especially given that Annie is, is a member of your own family? Mm-hmm. Well, she's a member of my extended family. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I don't know that that's what I had in mind when I began it as a novel, but that was kind of the wonder of creating a story based on truth. As you go along, you kind of have to follow your intuition, and there are facts, but there are also holes. Um, one of the conflicts for me as a writer was, yes, I did have to construct a lot, and maybe I was or wasn't being absolutely true to the people I was writing about, and I'm talking particularly about the collateral characters who revolve around the lives of Annie and her husband, Adam. And quite a few of them were based on true people, um, but a lot of them were composites because, yes, you're absolutely right, uh, a story has to have conflict. As my publisher often says, nobody wants to read 300 pages about two people who get along swimmingly. Right. But the framework of the story, <laughs> the framework of the story was accurate about her illness and how she was left to deal with it and how her husband was was left to to deal with it in the marriage as well. So I think the real story here is not about necessarily the specific conflicts in the story, but it's about how we ourselves react to conflict. And it's that old adage about how you can't change people's actions, but you have control over your reactions to it. And the whole story about Annie is one of 
hope and resilience and how she had to have that in spades, and she did, uh, in order to build a life for herself at a time when gender disparity was even more acute than, than, we, than it is today, and we think it's acute today, uh, the book had to go somewhere, and it had to end somewhere. So I had to think about how I would take those qualities in her and in Adam, her husband, and where was I going to go with that? And it could have gone several ways. We could have had the happily ever after ending, which I never really considered. Um, we could have had an ending where all the people involved in the orbit of this illness are brought down with resignation and sadness. Uh, fortunately, that was not the case. Uh, that was not indicated to me by the actual events of her life. And so where we end is where I think is the most realistic way in that we see hope and resilience. And it is, you know, kind of a love wins ending, but it's in the context of how do we define family as we go through our lives, given that we can't change other people's actions, but only our reaction to it. I think that's a really insightful, uh, helpful comment. Uh, I thought the ending was perfect. I'm not going to talk about what it is because we don't want, we want listeners to read the book and find out for themselves. But I agree that it is um, a very hopeful, resilient, uh, heartwarming ending. And of course, we're mostly going to talk about the beginning of the book where it's not clear that things are going to work out um, in any hopeful, resilient way? No, not at all. It's actually rather shocking beginning to the story in terms of, of what is visited upon her by her neurology and how utterly incomprehensible it was to everyone around her. And, you know, I think it's helpful for people when reading something like this to kind of um, try and put yourself in those shoes. And I think this works for male readers as well as female readers. And yes, I have had men read the book and uh, to the extent that one of them cried at the end. So I thought, okay, I got that one right. <laughs> but, but in terms of what it's like to have an illness that no one understands and for her to be a woman in a male-dominated medical and judicial system who was going to pass judgment on her in terms of what was going to happen to her in the course of her illness, which may not have been viewed as an illness back then, but rather as a kind of a moral defect and any uh, sentencing that she would have endured, especially in the early stages, was in the court of public opinion who had nothing to go on but stigma. Right. Yeah, we do see that. Um, that's why I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the ending, just so people know that, you know, it's worth going through the suffering at the beginning or the endurance at the beginning. Um, so let's talk about that beginning for a moment, because when we first meet uh, Annie, she is... Um, she's had a difficult relationship with her mother, let's put it that way. And in the introduction, which I read... Uh, you can see uh, that the, the the essence of that relationship. But talk about that. Uh, what's going on between Annie and her mother? I wish I knew. <laughs> what what I think what's what's going on between Annie and her mother, and it kind of sets the stage for the kind of losses that Annie will endure in her life and how she chooses to approach them. Her mother lost a child um, some years before Annie was born. And while I don't believe that a mother ever gets over losing a child or recovers from whatever, you know, uh, kind of, kind of pat language we want to use to describe that, I do think that most women learn to carry that grief and live with it in a manner that they don't project it onto their other children. In the case of Annie's mother, her grief was crippling. She never got, got to a point where she could put it into the context of the other children in her life in terms of Annie coming along 
seven years later um, at a time when possibly another child wasn't thought of as an option, and her mother projects that grief and loss onto her. And she becomes the child who shouldn't be there and the child who can never do anything right and the child who has nothing to recommend her. So where we are when the book opens, uh, or do you want to extend your question there? Well, uh, no, I think you covered that excellently. Um, You've already mentioned why you want to talk about the postpartum depression, but... Do you see that connection then between Annie's relationship with her mother and her uh, difficulty even with the children who do survive, uh, or do you see it purely as a neurological thing? I see it as, uh, well, I think she has the intellect to understand that that it's not uh, a retributive thing from God or or punishment for whatever. She doesn't buy into the theology of that kind of thinking. So I think she views, uh, and certainly when you think about how this all happened to her, married at 19, pregnant immediately, baby immediately, and then this horrible illness descends on her and her marriage is over before her first anniversary. That's pretty devastating. Um, Whether she made an emotional connection between that happening to her and her mother's attitude toward herself, I really think she was stronger than that, even at that young age and even as devastated as she was. But she, she made a the commitment in her heart that she would not, as she went through her life, repeat the sins of her mother, if you want to call them sins. I don't want to get into that kind of judgmental um, getting inside the heads of the characters. I think her mother um, did what her psyche dictated to her. We find it reprehensible, but there it is, because we're all subject to the human condition. I think Annie's life was all about undoing that and making sure that she did not become that kind of mother. And the fact that she had this horrific start at motherhood shaped the rest of her life and the way she approached it from there on out. So um, she's basically endured this double loss when we first meet her. She's lost her husband. She's lost her child. Uh, She's living in early 20th century uh, or late 19th century middle America. And she, so if she left her husband, she would lose her child anyway, because in those days, fathers tended to get custody. But she copes with this by then leaving her hometown and going to Montana to live with her brother. Um, So talk about, you said a bit about her character, so talk about her brother's character and what happens when she gets to Caswell, Montana. Okay. So, so yes, you mentioned about fathers getting custody, and that that was the case in some instances back then, but I kind of want to back up to that a little bit, because in the divorce proceedings, which I did have documentation for, her husband uh, testified that her behavior was such that he felt his life and the life of their daughter was imperiled. I think Annie felt that to some extent because her behavior was so inexplicable while in the throes of psychosis, and she did leave. And her thought in leaving, which I'm not giving away anything you don't read in the first chapter, her thought in leaving is to protect her baby because she isn't sure of what's going on with herself, and it's terrifying. So, yes, her husband gets custody, and there again I go back to thinking about what did that mean for her. What happened to her? after she walked out the door that night. Where could she go? Where would she be safe? Did she have any options? Did she have any parental rights? Was she represented in court when he divorced her? How long did her episodic psychosis last? All these factors, you know, visited on a 20-year-old woman. And and that was where I had to kind of think, where could she go from there? 
she had nowhere to go but back home. Where could she have gone? I don't think she had the luxury of trying to think about how she would cope or what we would call coping today. She has very little choice but to get up every day and go on with her life, much the same as she did before she was married. Very young, too sick to work. Who would have hired her? Everybody knows everything in this town, and the divorce filing would have been a public record. So she stayed on with her parents, working on a farm that she knew she would likely never own any part of. So here are the seeds of her coming to realize that somewhere along the line, she has to make a move uh, in terms of her own getting some control over her own destiny. And so the letter comes from her brother. He has a small homestead in Montana. He knows what her situation is. He left home many years ago himself, um, kind of wandered the country, and ended up with this small claim in Montana. And he invites her to come and live with him because, as he puts it, what is holding you to Iowa? There's nothing there for you. And she, that's her first glimmer that she can have some control over her own destiny. And so she leaves and goes to him. And we find out soon enough, once she arrives, that although they are uh, amicable, they have a good little relationship, and life is pretty good on his little homestead there, um, she finds she doesn't know him as well as she thought she did because he left home when she was a child. He's quite a bit older. And he's not planning on staying. And so he has some plans for the homestead. And uh, that's kind of where we get into the next part of the story. So, as you say, she's happy when she first gets there, uh, despite the issues um, of getting to know her brother again and discovering that he's thinking about leaving. The last thing she really wants is another husband, um, even though she loved the first one. but she soon runs into Adam Fielding and sparks fly, as they say. So tell us about Adam and what makes him the perfect partner for any or the wrong partner for any, perhaps, in some ways. Well, I suppose there's no perfect partner, so we could kind of start there. Um, yes, she meets Adam Fielding, and I think it's safe to say that um, it's not love at first sight. It is not love at first sight. Adam is a colleague of her brother's who came to Caswell, Montana as a business person, opened a men's furnishing store, and found out that he, too, uh, can't entirely escape his background, which was um, as the East Coast-born son of a minister who decided to come to North Dakota in the late 19th century. And um, his family came to a very forbidding uh, landscape at a time uh, when there was a need for supply ministers and also a family like theirs could take advantage of the free land that was available under the Homestead Act. So here's Adam's family coming to North Dakota during his formative years, very hard, very unforgiving climate and geography that actually claims many young lives, including some close to him. And as he observes this cycle of hardship and loss, he decides that parenthood, even partnerhood, is definitely not for him, and he is very determined to make his way in the world alone. So when he meets Annie, he also has no thoughts of parenthood. Um, They do butt heads. Um, She's just rediscovered her voice and the fact that she can exercise her will after a lifetime of being under someone else's thumb. And Adam has escaped the restrictions of being a clergyman's son. And they are both so strong-willed. I used when I was writing the book, I called them the boneheads. Um, But they share this really strong work ethic, and they have this very compelling chemistry that they don't understand. And tying it all together is this latent desire for parenthood that each of them has tried to ignore, but ultimately comes to the surface and makes them willing to take a chance on each other. Um, Annie's brother, a friend of Adam's, has told both of them separately that he's uh, 
Wanderlust is pushing him out the door and he's going to sell his homestead and he might as well sell it to them. They are not enamored of the idea and his kind of ham-fisted matchmaking at first, but they come to see that they have skills that dovetail very well and it's a wonderful opportunity. And so she, Annie does marry food. Adam um, and... Uh, Although they have a very passionate relationship and I think a very strong working partnership, um, their marriage becomes a, a kind of laboratory for all the ways that you can lose a child in the early 20th century. And I mean, I'd like you to talk about this element of the story. I'm not giving anything away at this point because if you read the back cover burb of the book, you already know that this is their crucial thing. But um, I'd like... Uh, I'd like you to talk, first off, I think maybe we should talk a little bit about what postpartum depression is um, as a condition, because I think even now, many people don't really appreciate what it means um, and don't really understand that how it's possible to have a child, want a child, love a child, and yet be depressed after the birth, birth um, to the point where, like Annie, you fear at least that you're going to kill the baby or do some harm the baby in some way and then just talk about it more in terms of what it does to their relationship as far as you're comfortable going into the story so you can stop at any point right well postpartum depression is actually many things and and so the, whatever surface definition we think of it it is actually far more complex than that and i don't pretend to be an expert in these things but given the symptoms of her illness over time and and what it led to I realized that what we might call today, we would call it perinatal or postpartum mood disorders. And they can encompass a range of emotions, not just um, what we call depression, which is kind of that paralyzing sadness. But in her case, it bled into more of a psychosis or possibly what we might consider a manic depressive or what we now call bipolar type of of perinatal and postpartum condition in that she would swing between these terrible bouts of anger in which she, I don't think she ever thought she would kill her baby, but I think she had thoughts of, I need to be rid of this. I just, I need to not be near this baby. And so that to me was evidence of, of the, even though she was in that frame of mind, she had a cognition about herself that something wasn't right. So between these episodes of aggression that she couldn't understand and the episodes of, of truly paralyzing depression that characterized some of her losses, there's this this entire body of human emotion that could only be <laughs> perplexing to her, but to her husband and to the casual observers in the wider circle of their life who would not have known what to make of it. You think of the time frame. Let me put the time frame into context a little bit. Um, we're talking about the Edwardian period, the, the 1910s, basically. And that was kind of the tail end of the frontier era. I think the end of the frontier era is considered to be 1912, when the last of the continental states in the contiguous 48 states achieved statehood. And that was also a time that was at the heart of the uh, westward migration push. So the town that they were in, um, which I called Caswell, and it is actually a composite of several towns along the Milk River in northern Montana. This was an area was common at that time where the railroad had come through and just nailed down track going across the country and put up a siding every 10 miles. And those were the uh, communities that became the towns along the railroad, and Caswell was one of those towns. So at the time Annie and Adam met, it was a town of some development, but still had major room to grow. And given Annie and Adam's uh, truly wonderful entrepreneurial spirit and energy, 
um, it was a good time for them to be there. Um, were they good partners? Um, and and I, I believe you said, was he the perfect husband or was he the wrong husband? Um, I think we're somewhere in between those two. And I, it will be fairly evident to readers uh, what Annie's illness is doing to her. Um, and perhaps on the surface be evident what it's doing to Adam. Uh, but it goes deeper than that. And here is where we see a very different kind of gender disparity. Um, and not to give away too much again, but we have a devastating illness here, and it's terribly frightening because nobody understands what's going on. Um, we watch them swing back and forth between hopefulness, accomplishment, incredible passion, and these devastating incidences that push them back a little farther every time. So as readers, we're becoming worried that there's a breaking point coming. Okay. Um, if we do hit that breaking point, what's going to happen? Uh, will one of them break and one of them not? Will they both break? What will the breakage look like? What happens to us as humans when we break? And how do we react to each other? And how do we recover and go on or not? And so while there were few resources for women back then, there were absolutely no resources for men. And this book examines, first and foremost, what happened to women with mental health issues, but also a profound look at what happens to the emotions that might accompany a husband in that situation. And in what part would he grieve not only for the children he lost or the children he couldn't have or the marriage that's disintegrating before his eyes, um, but for the guilt of possibly wondering what role he has played in his wife's illness, what part his chemistry and emotion may have played in that, and how there wouldn't be anyone that he could reach out and talk to about those feelings. And only today, and we are talking in, uh, we're having this conversation in May of 2018, and it is, uh, maternal Mental Health Month, so we're seeing a lot in the media about postpartum mood disorders. And one of the things I'm seeing this year a lot that I have not seen in previous years is discussion of how postpartum illnesses affect men. This is a phenomenal advance, but look how long it's taken. We are over 100 years, well over 100 years out from where Annie and Adam had to deal with this sort of thing. I'm really glad that you mentioned um, that they are imperfect uh, because I didn't mean to imply that uh, there was such a thing as a perfect partner. I mean, to the extent that ever happens, it happens in romance novels, and this is very clearly historical fiction that deals with very intense and deeply thought out emotional reactions. Um, and in fact, is there imperfection that make them so compelling and as human beings because, or as literary characters rather, because just as we don't want to read 300 pages about perfect lives, we don't want to read 300 pages about perfect people either. <laughs> no, but, but I do think the element of romance is, is, underlines quite a bit here. It's just um, a, a different definition of romance. And I believe you, you asked me in what ways was Adam possibly the wrong husband for her. Um, that, um, I wrote a note when you said that, um, could there have been a right one given their circumstances and given the resources that community and medicine did not have at that time. The, um, at one point in the story uh, where Adam has to confront some uh, community, members of community health and law enforcement, they mentioned that at, that at the moment she's doing well. Annie is doing well. And he says she's doing well now because she's not pregnant. 
Yeah. Okay. And to me, that was, you know, when I wrote that, it was sort of, it was almost like I wasn't writing it myself. It was someone else's thought coming to me because it made it crystal clear to me in that moment that the only treatment that was really going to work for her was to never be pregnant again. And she has to confront that too at another point in the book. But for them who have this fiery relationship and the thought of, of having to continue on that, you know, without that element, because the only cure she was ever going to have is to never be pregnant again. That's a really shattering thought to me. Well, it is. And we can talk about, you know, we can talk about, you know, the birth control of the day and all that, but they've reached a point where it is really imperative that she not ever be pregnant again, because, devastating thing even even more devastating things are going to happen um the resolution of that and the way that she incorporates that into her life as she goes on i think um is one of the more um inspiring elements of her character that she has to take that information and refashion and reshape how she thinks of family and what her choices are. I agree with all of that. Um, and I think you've also hinted at something which gets back to your point about how men deal with these things because in that statement that Adam makes, essentially he's expressing a sense of helplessness that if she gets pregnant, yeah, right? And that's something men of all ages have, find very difficult to cope with. And in 1910, in addition to that, men would not want to talk about their feelings. They wouldn't want to acknowledge it. I mean, they don't want to acknowledge it now often, but I think men now are much more comfortable with the idea that they can experience grief and fear and emotions other than anger, whereas back then it was much more difficult. Very difficult. And in that same exchange, um, the the uh, law enforcement and and uh, health officials are talking to him, and one of them says, "Well, given how you feel about your wife," and his response is, "You don't know how I feel about my wife, and I don't have the luxury of letting that enter into my decisions anymore." And so again, it's this really piercing moment where decisions have to be made, where love has become kind of a luxury and nobody wants to nobody wants to be in that position and i think you know the the thought that i'm trying to put forth in all of this is the emotions that we have as humans um were no different a hundred years ago than they are now. So this story that, oh, it was a long time ago, things aren't that way anymore, things are that way. Um, the, the human spirit doesn't change. You know, maybe what we intellectually know and what, you know, resources we may or may not have to cope, maybe those, those things change with time. But the core of our feelings about ourselves and those we love... Um, we wrestle with the same things that Annie and Adam were dealing with 100 years ago. Yes, and of course this is the absolute heart of the human experience. It's marriage, it's partnering, it's love, it's parenting, um, and the inability in this case to parent uh, for reasons that are essentially outside their control. I mean, whatever fed into it, whether it was emotional or physical or something else, situational. I mean, th these are not things that they can even acknowledge half the time, let alone master. No, they are outside their control. And um, and I, uh, one of the dear friends I made in the course of all the years I spent researching is a um, historian in Alberta who is now 95 years old and very much involved with the, the ongoing um, research and writing of this book. He's a writer himself. And it, when he read the book, or should I 
say he had the book read to him because at 95 he was not able to read it. But his takeaway, his single takeaway from this book, and I thought, yes, he got it exactly, was he said, here's a couple who are trapped in tragic circumstances they can't control, but are possessed of human hearts which won't abandon hope. Oh, that's wonderful. I love that. That is, the, that is the crux of it, the human heart that won't abandon hope. So, t- oh. And, you know, I, I, nothing is a universal truth, but I think when we live in that kind of, um, in, in that kind of mindset that we're not going to abandon hope, I think, as I said, um, that opens the door to the, you know, what I call the love wins scenario, although the configuration may not be what we wanted or expected because we don't get to know that and we don't always get to choose. Well, we do get to choose. You get to make choices based on on what presents itself to you at the time, but that living in hope and the resilience that you draw from it is the core of this story. So, um, so let's talk about how that's reflected in your title. The River by Starlight is uh, the name that Annie gives to a quilt that she gives to Adam. Um, so there's an obvious symbolic uh, element there. But it's also based on a quotation from Henry David Thoreau. And how does it express this theme that you've been describing as we talk? Well, uh, um, another interviewer had asked me about... Um, what she kind of picked up as the autobiographical elements of the story. And she said, you know, authors frequently put pieces of themselves into the story. So how did you put yourself into this story? And I, well, the, the title, I mean, how does it get more personal than that? I don't know whether Annie and Adam read Thoreau. That, I did not ever come across that in my research, but I have always been a devotee of Thoreau. And, the story does take place on a river. That was a real river. I visited the place. I stood on the actual spot where she decides to make that quilt. And the quotation that came to mind as I was looking at that was from Thoreau's journal where he said he was out on the river on a sultry night. It actually was summer in the book. It's fall. But that he observed the river by starlight and that the reflection of the stars on the water made the illusion of what he called bright sparks continually ascending. So it looked, the the shimmering reflection of the stars on the water made it seem like the river was throwing the sparks of light back up to the heavens. And I thought that was just a really sequent metaphor for what she had to do with her life. Uh, later in the book, uh, she also quotes Thoreau again when, after a time of enormous misfortune, she has come out whole on the other end uh, through sheer determination, and she leaves a note for a woman who she hasn't met yet but is coming into a similar situation, and she quotes Thoreau saying, what people say you cannot do, you try and find that you can so that's Annie. Um, is it Adam? <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's a great explanation. Thank you. I could see it as you were talking. I see how it fits into the story. Let's talk a little bit about the historical research. Um, as a historian, I always loved the research. and But people have such different approaches to it. It sounds like you did quite a bit in advance or as you were writing um, so what's your take on it? Um, my take on researching a historical novel, and as, as we've already discussed, uh, this was my first one. It was not my first uh, go at researching historical writing, but my first uh, as a novel. And um, I couldn't stop. <laughs> it was like um, everything I found out made me want to find out more. So... I went on a total of six research trips. I went through Montana. I went through Alberta because uh, part of the story takes place in Edmonton. I went through North Dakota. I retraced uh, Adam's coming-of-age years in North Dakota and 
and Annie's early years in Montana. Um, and the more I found out, the more I wanted to know. So that on-site research, I do believe you can write a historical book without going to the places that you're writing about if you truly can't go there. It doesn't mean you can't write a book. But if you can go there, what you find when you get there is that these places each have a vibe. They have a vibe that sometimes tells you a great deal about what was experienced there and sometimes is almost undetectable, which tells me that it was a really low-energy place but didn't have much impact. When you go to these places, you also avail yourself of just an amazing array of libraries and archives and government records and and the old timers that you meet when you go to these tiny towns in these obscure states and someone says, oh, you ought to go two blocks over and talk to so-and-so. He lived here at the time you're talking about and he'll talk your ear off about it. You know, and so I met a lot of people in these places who, who took me into their businesses, took me into their homes. Some of them even took me into their families. They kind of adopted me, and I'm still in touch with them. So the wealth of what I was able to learn, and a lot of it hands-on, I think shows up in the book and in a lot of the descriptions of place and some of the language and that sort of thing. Having said that, I'm also sitting in front of, as I talk to you, I'm sitting in front of a seven-foot bookcase that is actually just crammed to overflowing with books that I read on various subjects, large and small, in the book, and um, pardon my use of the word, but binders full of (laughs) documents and news clippings that that really added that minute detail as well. Um, However... And, and I find this to be one of the more entertaining aspects of my research. Out of all those books on that seven-foot bookshelf, the one I used the most was one I paid $1.50 for at a used book sale. And believe it or not, it is a 1902 Sears catalog. And when you start flipping through a Sears catalog... Um, it becomes an anthropology lesson, and it is really uh, quite a broad look at what life was like during those times, as of what people bought, what they wore, what kind of snake oil potions they took, what kind of farm implements they used, their furniture. Um, it's just absolutely everything. So as you're reading the book, there are hundreds of tiny details in there that came from the Sears catalog. And, of course, they had pictures as well, which is even better. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So are there any favorite elements or characters from the novel that we haven't mentioned that you would like to mention before we close? All my favorites. <laughs> I guess my favorite part is, is I had asked an editor some years ago, how am I going to know when this book is done? There's so much research. I can't possibly include it all. I ended up having to, you know, edit severely to get the book into publishable form. When will I know I'm done after 10, 12 years? And she said, when your publisher pries the manuscript out of your cramped fingers because it's time to go to the printer. And that is, <laughs> that's pretty, pretty much <laughs> How it came down was I was tweaking commas right up to the day they said it's time to go to print. So now my favorite part is seeing how others react to the story, absorb the messages and process, and let me know how it affected them. So in a way, it's kind of a moment where I get to see did I get it right in terms of not, you know, right or wrong, but did I achieve what I set out to, uh, which is maybe more importantly, it's to see this ever fascinating microcosm of the human condition. And my readers will see when they go to the end of the book and read the author's note that my husband deemed this book my grand adventure. He called it your grand adventure. And he also called the book a member of the family. 
And I told him, okay, you get the last word, because that exploration of all the many and varied definitions of family and the infinite ways that family shapes us is indeed what my grand adventure and everyone's grand adventure is all about. And is that what you would like readers to take away from the novel? That family is what you make it. You bet. That and what you talked about earlier about hope. I oh, think. absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, when you see when you see someone who is in the, the depths of personal misfortune and social injustices that Annie was subjected to as a result of her illness, and you see that even in those circumstances, um, one can, can move beyond it and reshape their life in a manner that they can look back on at the end of their lives and say, yeah, I did that, and it was good. Um, I think that's a message for all of us and for all generations and all time. Are you working on something else now, another novel or another nonfiction book? Well, it's a, that's that's always the question: is will I write another novel? And that the that one we'll just have to wait and see. Um, what I'm working on right now is actually interesting in its own way. I began my writing career uh, with a book that was a nonfiction book that was published uh, 15 years ago, and it has. Um, proved itself to be rather evergreen. It's been popular for the entire 15 years, and now I am working on a third edition because, um, in a way, it's the same as how I look at the River by Starlight. Things can be timeless and timely at the same time, and we bring that along with us as we move through our own continuum of life. So it's my 15th anniversary edition of my first book, and that will be out next year. Congratulations. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. And today I've been talking with Ellen Notbaum about her debut novel, River at Starlight, released in May 2018. You can find out more about her at www.ellennotbaum.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplizzy.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.